So I wish I had a joke. Um, <laughs> but I'll start by saying um, welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Uh, my name is Stephen Leva. I am the editor of the Little Patuxent Review. Um, and it's my great pleasure to be your host this evening for a celebration of the Enoch Pratt Free Poetry Contest, um, its finalist and its uh, winner, and also to celebrate uh, the 10-year anniversary of Little Patuxent Review. Um, it is uh, a, um, achievement, an, an achievement that few print magazines, print literary journals, small press journals make it to. Um, so I am endlessly grateful that I am that I have the honor to be editing at, at as we reach this milestone. Um, we have a, a great group of readers for you this evening, um, and I'm going to be introducing them all. Uh, but I'm going to start our evening off by reading just um, two poems of my own. Um, but I will say too that there are copies of the Little Patuxent Review um, for, on sale just outside the door. There you can read all of the uh, contributors um, to the Enoch Pratt Free Contest that are finalists and the winner. Um, they're published in this issue. There's wonderful photography by uh, Lynn uh, Silverman, who is a photography teacher over at MICA, and um, a wonderful interview as well by Eugenia Kim. Um, so those are for sale, and the uh, poets also have books for sale as well, so if you enjoy their work, one of the best ways you can support a poet is buy their book and read it and buy another one and give it for a Christmas gift, um, but uh, support them as as you um, are able. Um, so there are two cities that I write about quite a bit. Um, one of them is obviously Baltimore, where I have, uh, currently have my home, and the other is New Orleans, where I was born. Um, and those two cities are kind of, in my imagination, sister cities. Both port towns, uh, both have a, a particular love of seafood and a richness around food culture. Um, so I'm just going to read um, uh, two poems, one that's about New Orleans and one that is about Baltimore. So I'll start with this one about New Orleans, and it's called Primer. Primer. There is no New Orleans, only the pauses between parades. The city christens its own, each palm leaf brushing our esplanade, a wet aspergillum. You will be known here. As a gargoyle knows each inch of stone it sleeps in, but cannot wipe its tears. What has all this iron wrought? Our family intoning Zadiko means the accordion's broken back, means a fiddle's whip over catgut, means there is a balcony for everyone to die on. What is French about these quarters is exile. All gardens to the backyard. Son, remember to tell your sons. What whispers in the weary ear Endlessly, come here, taste and taste, is an inability to sustain innocence. No, not quite. Something like feathers plucked from a mask. The first neighborhood I lived in was Fells Point. 
And here's a poem about old Fells Point called Prologue, Fells. Everything begins a dead-end slope into the bay. Men blacken between one block and another. No morning bell rings out but the drone of tugboats and men's boots against cobble. First light, and they've disappeared into the bread factory. These grandsons of watermen only know the work of ovens. Ovens larger than their homes, the scent of wives, the scent of children is lost. What remains is the smell of rye in clothes and the work whistle's song blowing at dusk. Huddled under a linden shake, the men shake fists, shoot dice, and shadow box drunk on whiskey. Some blood is always left on a friend's fist. They remain, praise their bodies, and bruise each other to forget their fathers better. Men don't remember how to work the sea. On piers, men skip corks across the water. Corks promised sons as toys. They mock the call of gulls, throats sick and salted down. Bedsheets refuse to yield, stiffened by brined air, and the men stare at their hands. There is no ache in them, no burns from ropes swollen with water. The same hands still labor furiously at their wives' body, unable to embody father or mother or pleasure, moving with such precise violence, the air seizes up like stale bread. It is my great pleasure to welcome our first reader, Sherry Allen. Sherry Allen's poetry has appeared most recently in the Tampa Review and is forthcoming in Lilith. She was chosen as one of the 2010 Best New Poets and received an honorable mention for the 2011 Academy of American Poets Prize. Her manuscript, American Aleph Bet, formed part of her 2013 doctoral dissertation in English at the University of Cincinnati. She's a wonderful reader and a wonderful person. Please welcome Sherry Allen. Uh, hi, everyone. Um, I am so excited to be here. It's uh, in the words of a... Um, uh, presidential nominee, it's unbelievable. Um, I just, I, first I want to thank Stephen for choosing my poem and Shalene Beyer and uh, Tracy and the other wonderful people here at Enoch Pratt for letting me come and do this. And a special shout out to Hillary and Sammy who schlepped out here for me today and all to all of you for coming. Um, and uh, just a little uh, correction, that bio was a bit older than right now. The Lilith that was forthcoming was January of 2014. <laughs> so, um, but uh, I, that was my last poetry publication till this. And what's amazing is this was my first submission after returning to Maryland uh, in what can only be described as a crash landing, 
where I fell and badly hurt my leg and had a cast on my leg. And uh, it was my, it's my first time living here in Baltimore since 1983. And I came here for elder care reasons for my mom, Carol, who appears in some of these poems. And it was my first poetry submission since January of 15. And um, it was just an incredible thing to find out that I got to be in the winner's circle. And I'm still kvelling, for those of you who know a little Yiddish, it means like excitedly, I don't know, kvelling. It's hard to describe. It's not, it's more than showing off. It's kind of like, yay. Okay. Yeah, kvelling. That's what it means. All right. So speaking of Jewish things, um, actually just a little word about my manuscript. Um, so it's based on a series of poems about Hebrew letters. And I'm going to read you a few of those poems tonight. And um, it hasn't been published yet as a book, so if there are any publishers listening to this in the podcast, think about it. Um, and also I realized when I went over my manuscript that about 10 pages have mentions of Baltimore in them. So Baltimore just keeps reappearing. I did not realize how much until I was getting ready for tonight. So the poem that made finalist in the competition is called When My Grandparents Come Back to Me. It's on page 110 of the gorgeous little Patuxent Review uh, for those who are interested in buying a copy. And um, just the few things you need to know to understand what's going on here is that friendship, the word friendship, referred to an airport now known as BWI. And uh, gribbiness kind of gets explained in the poem. I hear some laughs, so someone's Jewish in this audience. Um, and I think everything else is pretty self-explanatory. Um, just a little sidebar here. The neighborhood at the very end of the poem, Fulton and Riggs, I just found out North Fulton Avenue was the border between the white and black sides of Baltimore. And I have reason to believe that my great-great-grandmother was black. And that's a whole other story, and I'll save it for later. When my grandparents come back to me, I hear through their Pikesville walls his deep of exile and her high solo snore, a noise so contrapuntal I am a child again, listening to their loud sleep, as if an invisible baton traced a U above the sound. Once she's awake, her words keep lathing the day like a second hand. Don't forget, the radio says rain. When does the plane get to friendship? Grandma's plump, powdered face smells of Lanvin and Old Bay as we sit down to a savory seethe of gribbiness crisped in its fat. To her, schmaltz is never cliché. But no matter how much I eat, she hands back the plate with, you hardly touched it. He offers a pinch of non-sequitur over the evening sun. Mama, they're dropping like flies. Under obits, names they recognize. The three of us float above blue willow made in Japan, while granddaddy shows his hands to me 
their smoothness warm as when his name was lettered on glass at the corner of Fulton and Riggs. So that corner is part of what an area of Baltimore now known as Sandtown. I just found out a few weeks ago that Freddie Gray is from that neighborhood. My grandfather had a store. It was called Applestein's Pharmacy on the corner of Fulton and Riggs. My mother, Carol, her sister, Betty, and her brother, Fred, grew up in the two floors above the store. And they were there from, my grandparents were there from the 20s to the 60s. And during the riots, the store was spared. And the reason was that my grandfather served everybody as an equal, always. He was a member of the NAACP in the 30s, and um, he was a very interesting man. So this is about him, his vocabulary. Tarred was granddaddy's tired. To find a Jew with his face, I had to walk an unmarked road with Yemenites, hours from Jerusalem. My father won't let me date Italians, she said. But my name's Applestein, he said. He had a permanent tan. A quota man at Hopkins, after the Great War, he got himself a good corner. The family name and farm D hand-lettered on glass. Behind it, painted plaster figures, a black dog and a white dog, advertised whiskey next to bluing soap and a pestle. Those dogs stood in the basement after he lost the store. It was typical in Baltimore to hear blacks called schwarzas, but when he said it, he almost swallowed the word and never spoke of the grandmother whose photograph was missing among shoeboxes of others with Cyrillic on their backs. But neither did I hear him say his wife's name, Molly, he always said, Mama, or to me, self-correcting, your mother, your grandmother. On their first date, he told her, here's what relativity is. <clears throat> so, just in case you may think that all of my poems are about Baltimore, um, here's one about D.C., <laughs> We lived there, we lived just outside of D.C. when I was a small child. I was there with my parents in Arlington, as you'll hear. Um, and the only thing to know about this that you might not know is that there's a reference to Lowell. That's Robert Lowell, the great the major poet of the mid-century, uh, who participated in a very famous major protest against the Vietnam War where they tried to levitate the Pentagon. And that is what that refer the reference to him refers to. And also, there's a wonderful Chinese restaurant I mentioned here that is a real place, and I really remember it, and I would love to find somebody else who can tell me what happened to it. Near the Capitol. Oh, by the way, this poem appeared in the Tampa Review, winter 2012-2013. Near the Capitol. From windows of our GTO, Washington was Oz. Green square crew cuts and white facades. While Pentagon protesters faced helmets, 
my fingers held motley Chinese vegetables at the inn of the eight immortals. I was three. We lived in Arlington, a bridge away, whose lights hung red and yellow against an overcast sky. They never took me to its cemetery. For me, the war was done in Vietnam when my father came home from Da Nang. His work on K Street was up and coming. He posed where black-suited men drank scotch and women sipped Pernod. My mother dialed bars one by one while our lamb went cold. My father's path could have crossed Lowell's, but when I played on the mall, I didn't know what a protest was or how round words in the reflecting pool fringed by cherry tree blooms were more than beads falling on the wall-to-wall at home lost in our broad loom. And now for some Hebrew. How am I doing on time? Okay, all right. <laughs> I forgot the timer after all that. There's a little uh, visual here. Dun, dun, dun. This is a shin. If you're listening in a podcast, just look up shin in Google. Just say shin and Hebrew letter. Okay. I've been told that my book will be more acceptable if I can find an artist who does Hebrew letters to work with me on these. So if anybody out there knows of one, let me know. This is called Sin. A single dot undeifying the letter tops one tine, misheard in English ears as brimstone path. Sin is merely S without H. The first written Sarah, Abraham's, begins with a sin. Smaller than her banishment of her husband's lover and son, whose progeny hate us, my yeshiva teacher said, because of what this matriarch did, Sarah begat Surah, Yiddish version on Luzerne Avenue, my mother's grandmother, and my eponym. Unlike she who laughed at the idea her old womb would quicken, great-grandma bore the first of seven, married at 16. I was named for her. Single and childless at 29, I caught the eye of a Tel Aviv cabbie who asked the rear view, Mashlomcha. I told him my name, and he smiled, calling Imenu, our mother, in a teasing voice. Sorry, I forgot to say Mashlomcha means, what's your name? Okay. Awesome sauce. Okay, so I'm going to read the poem that uh, I also read in Columbia, which is the one that was um, published in Chet and chosen by Marge Piercy. I was really excited about that when it happened, called Chet, also another Hebrew letter. So this involves a little moment of visuals. Here is a Chet. (laughs) Okay. And here's the poem. Chet is not the aspirate in Atchu, transliterated CH. Like a faux ami, it tricks the American eye. Worn fingernail-sized for luck, where a neighbor dangles the cross, this letter coughs up the fiddler's cliché with a sound of choking on life, chai, and my great-grandfather's name. Renamed Hyman, 
by some Port of Baltimore official with a sense of humor. Chaim stands like a wrestler on the sepia card. His immigrant hands, big as prayer books, could knock a child of either sex across a room without closing. This is how my grandmother lost her hearing in one ear. If she didn't like what you were saying, it went in that ear. My mother's Hebrew name, Hannah, biblical woman who seemed drunk when she cried to God, begins with this sound. And chayot is the word for wild creatures from which the traveler's prayer seeks protection. Like the stray moose on a main highway that stepped before my stepbrother's Chevy and totaled it, the boy came to singing Shira Hadasha, a new song. Thank you. Our next reader is going to be Lee Hinton. Lee's work has been widely published. It can be found in Little Patuxent Review, The Best American Poetry 2014, chosen by Terrence Hayes, The Somerset Review, The Baltimore Review, and Outside Clipper Magazine Stadium in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, incorporated into Derek Parker's sculpture, Common Thread. Please welcome my dear friend, Lee Hinton. I want to thank Enoch Pratt Library. I want to thank Little Patuxent Review. I believe absolutely in thank yous. I had the misfortune of spending time with a young man, or not so young man, who thought that it was okay to say thank you and be done with it. I believe in thanking everyone for everything forever. So I thank all of you for coming out tonight. I'm going to read a couple poems that were in different issues of Little Patuxent Review, and also a few poems, three poems from my current manuscript. The first poem I'm going to read is called Solving for X, and it was inspired by my father. It's also in a form that's called a Gigan, G-I-G-A-N. Ruth Ellen Kocher is the creator, creator of that form. It's an interesting form, and I've, I've had a lot of fun with it lately. Solving for X. Because your father was a teacher, he set up a blackboard to teach you math. You were four, almost five, learning the difference between more and less, how to add, when to subtract, how to savor a piece of candy when you got an answer exactly right. He died on your ninth birthday, precisely when his kidneys reached zero. Each filtration rate a little less than the week before, each week a lesson in pure subtraction. One side of the board, add days. The other side, deduct life. Because your father was a teacher, he died on your ninth birthday, leaving the poetry of life for your mom to explain, the higher math to someone else, and you on your own to figure out what is left, which equations can and can't be solved for X. As I said, I believe in saying thank you for everything forever, and I 
especially thank Little Patuxent Review. I'm going to read the poem that was originally published in Little Patuxent Review, I believe the winter 2013 issue, and then subsequently was chosen by Terence Hayes for Best American Poetry 2014. For that, I will be ever, ever, ever thankful. It's called No Doubt About It, I Gotta Get Another Hat. If, if you're a, of a certain age and you happen to watch certain cartoons, that rings a bell. I usually don't explain a lot of things, but I mentioned Vincent, and I'm talking about Vincent Price, and for some who may have forgotten or may not have known, there was a time in the 60s where Vincent Price sold artwork for Sears. And, this, and one other thing I should tell you about the poem is that it's appropriate that I read it because I wrote it for Chris Toll, who was a great poet from Baltimore and died suddenly about four years ago. No doubt about it, I gotta get another hat for and after Chris Toll. In my head, it was Vincent, not Boris, who narrated the Who family fun during Grinch time in December. But then he clocked in for Sears selling Rembrandts, not Lady Kenmore's. Clarity at 14. Why is he in creche? I met Santa who fingered a pocket full of poems on the corner of St. Paul and Nowhere, now here. Four times, maybe three, he passed out couplets to the crowd, a smile full of antlers, Bullwinkle, not Rudolph. I know why Chris is in Christmas. Some gods play with clouds like Plato. Who forgot to wind the clock? Some poets cloud with play like heart tracings. Why is Toll in Atoll? How does a poet fall back into the sky? What time is it? I am sure, certain, only twice each day. This is once. I know why he is in ache. These final three poems are part of a manuscript I'm working on. And I found myself being, I guess most poets find themselves being obsessed with some subject. Subject I tended to be obsessed with over the past year and a half has been cotton. So Cotton makes an appearance in most of the poems that will be in this collection. Sometimes it's just a walk-on role, a cameo. Sometimes it's actually even an interview with, with Cotton. His first poem is uh, my version of a villanelle, and it's called The Ignorance of Cotton, subtitled Villanelle for Tamir Rice. I am only a plant. I have no college degree. I don't understand capillary action, how liquid is absorbed from floor into cloth. I am only a plant. I never studied physics or kinetic energy, velocity or force. I don't understand the psychology of blue bullies or their bullets, how 12 years becomes 20 in their eyes, how play leads to dead. I am only a plant, and I can't explain how blood is absorbed from brown skin into gray sweatshirt. I don't understand why this repetition repeats. 
Why do children still lie still? I am only a plant. I don't understand. There are several poems in the collection that have the title Uses of Cotton. This one is called Uses of Cotton Forgiveness. And there are two epigraphs. First epigraph. I don't think there's anybody here who wants to do anything but forgive. Jack Meyer, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Second epigraph. I forgive you. Nadine Collier, Charleston, South Carolina. I've been thinking about the trip to Charleston. The wicker basket, woven and flawed. Brown weave, tan counterpoint. Maybe we should have bought it, despite the red stain. I know you haven't forgotten the many ways to feel the textures of pain and remembrance, love and forgiveness. You mentioned a gullah quilt we did take home. Each panel a star, each star a different color, the blue star pointing north, the exact shade of a free sky, and the Amish quilt that was colored on our bed. We cried on that quilt for five Amish angels flying gray in the sky over West Nickel Mines. Cried for 13-year-old Marion who said, shoot me first. For the six-year-old Rosanna, who's still silent today. Cried for the forgiving hearts tucked inside their family's chest. How do hearts remain that pure in a country called America? In a one safe place for Amish, or in a town called Charleston? How does a man, a man named Wanza, step in front of bullets, let them rip his black flesh to give Aunt Susie a chance to add a few more seconds to her 87-year life? A church floor bleeds in Charleston. In Lancaster, a school is torn down. Half a country loads bullets into chambers while somewhere, lying on her parents' quilt, a child dreams of hanging stars back in the sky. And I'm going to close with this poem. It's an interview with Cotton. In writing all these poems, I thought, well, Cotton must have a point of view too. And I also remembered something Nikki Giovanni wrote, and I'm paraphrasing, but she sort of said that Forget about the advice of writing what you know, because if all you wrote was what you would know, you, we'd all have one book or three poems. <laughs> Poets write from empathy, and that's what we do, even if we are empathizing with a plant. There's an, there's an epigraph for this one also. Interview with Cotton, part one, Dreams, the epigraph. As early as 503 BC, the Chinese knew of cotton. However, they used silk and were not interested in cotton as a cloth until much later. At first, they grew it as a decorative garden flower. And that's from the first book of cotton. You asked about the early days, the disappointments and desires. 
Sometimes I dream of being a beautiful bouquet delivered into the arms of a young wife, where I'd imagine having my petals scattered across silk sheets, waiting for my true love to come home, a surprise, an anniversary, a prelude to romance. I never wanted to be picked for the money, damned like tobacco. I never wanted my white bowls to be turned into green money, to be the reason for blood in the fields, the men whipped for being slow, the women beaten for crying out, brown bodies without their own names, black children who just wanted to play. I didn't ask for any of it. I should have been the flower in Lady Day's hair, the blanket or Martin's casket, the floral array at Beyonce's wedding, but no one gave me that chance. I wanted to be like Rose, but they ignored my bloom and waited for the fluff, the cash crop, the motive for someone's greed. Maybe I should apologize, but this legacy isn't my choice. When the sun goes down, I still dream of bouquets. In my dreams, I am beautiful. In my dreams, I am still innocent. Thank you. The famous South American writer um, Borges has an Ars Poetica where he mentions that um, Odysseus on his way back to Ithaca, dressed in all these wonders, exclaims not for what he brought home, but for the sight of his green country. Um, he goes on to say that art is that eternal green of Ithaca. Um, and at no point um, do I ever try to lose sight of the fact that poetry is a home that I can always return to. Um, when the whole world is determined to feast on itself, I'm aware that poetry is home um, for us all. Our next reader is Maggie Rosen. Maggie Rosen is a native of Greensboro, North Carolina, and now lives in Silver Spring, Maryland. Her poems have been published in Barely South, Blood Lotus, Sow's Ear, and Plain Songs. She has worked as an education writer and teacher of English to speakers of other languages. She was one of the finalists for the Enoch Pratt Poetry Contest. Please welcome Maggie Rosen. <laughs> Pardon me while I find my reading glasses. Um, so happy to be here and not on 95 North anymore. Wow. It's bad out there. Everybody be careful on the roads. All right, we'll just go in there. If I have to, I'll switch. Yeah, <laughs> it's much better than squinting. Um, I'm also happy to report that my first words were thank you. Yeah, and I agree. I'm thankful, especially this week, for people who are here. This is really lovely to see a crowd, and I'm thankful for this sky. Isn't that nice? And I'm thankful for poetry, because when things are really going like they're going, Outside in the real world, it is nice to have a little bit of 
of a home to think about. Um, a lot of my poems are written about where I grew up, which is Greensboro, North Carolina, um, which is where the 60s saw the sit-ins, which most people associate with Greensboro. And currently there is an um, international civil rights museum in Greensboro. Um, and somewhere in between those two events, a lot of interesting things happened that regarded race, many of them during my childhood in the city, and they became a manuscript. And it's being published, hopefully, in the next month or two by Redbird Chapbooks. Um, it's called The Deliberate Speed of Ghosts. Um, and I wish I had it, but hey... Um, if you Google Maggie Rosen and Deliberate Speed of Ghosts in about a month, hopefully, you'll see some way to get a hold of it. Um, it started with a, with a book that I found in a giveaway at my daughter's elementary school called um, Ghosts of the Carolinas, which was, I picked it up and went, oh my goodness, because it was straight from my childhood and from all these creepy ghost stories that people tell in North Carolina. I mean, Creepy. My sister won't even let me talk about that book. Um, but that led me into thinking about other ghosts. And um, that led to a whole bunch of poetry. So here's the first one that I'd like to read to you. It's called um, Favorite Stories to Read Aloud. Carolina ghosts ride horses through the gas station, hitch a ride from the swamp, worn of hurricanes. There are countless tales of the bobbing lights that lovers see in Brown Mountain, but also near Wilmington, where the signalman looks for his head. Then there are the stories of the black children who integrated the schools. They are not looking for body parts in the marshes, nor singing through the walls of the plantation. They wore raw eggs to class, sat on thumbtacks, Ducked as the windshield shattered. They sat with the Yankees and the pregnant kids. They sang spirituals as low as they could. They graduated alone from Greensboro High and marched not to Selma nor Washington, but to a small sentence in the back of the fourth grade text. Once and now there is Josephine Boyd. She smiles wryly when she visits her old high school and they clap. Her mother lost her job. Somebody killed their two dogs. The swamp girl had nothing on her as she rode day after day on the school bus and did not lose her arm in the door, did not hover above the grave folks promised would wait for her if she dared to walk at graduation. She was the first black graduate and the last one for eight more years. The graduation theme was Be Yourself. If you listen, you can hear Dr. Boyd laughing. Okay. Here's another one. This one's called Carolina Theater. And I was hearing a lot of themes about architecture and past and, and earlier poems, so uh, sort of continuing that theme, the idea that the buildings also have a lot to say. Carolina Theater. The ceiling glowed like twilight, somebody said. Green granite columns welcomed young white couples. 
Sandstone floors with marble tiles led to the black gallery, where you would be second class but could bask in the magic of movies. Otis Hairston's dad told him, don't take it. Don't pay money to go up to the balcony. But others warned not to protest. Before the formica of Woolworths around the corner gleamed into fame, hundreds died or were beaten as they claimed rights that the nice nobodies didn't want to talk about. Otis's wife's mother refused to give up a seat on a bus, a night bus from Raleigh to Knoxville, refused three times at every stop. She was arrested and battered and dead ten months later. Otis and others walked the sidewalk. They were arrested at the Carolina, booked at the Coliseum, and jailed at the old polio hospital. In July 1981, Melba Fry took off her clothes, sat in that balcony, and burned herself down with the theater, her whiteness fading in the embers until it was reduced to charcoal. The papers were full of the crusts of photos of gold cap columns, batshit Melba Fry stories, the sad facade fading into the gray of the shopping mall ads. The theater closed for years, empty as the streets around it. Now open for galas, a guide brags the theater integrated gradually and civilly. It recommends a tour of the restored beauty, but watch out for the balcony. Occasionally, someone whispers temptations, lingering regrets. You hear a scratch of sulfur, glass, and timony on wood. A seat snaps back. Okay, okay. Um, this one was uh, more of my own childhood. When I was in um, third grade, Greensboro decided to desegregate. Um, and uh, start that deliberate speed thing very quickly. Um, they moved a lot of kids across the town, um, and it was, it was a very interesting year. Um, and this poem is sort of based on that. It's called Greensboro Showing. In the abandon of winter, after they took the giant waving Santa down, the friendly center marquee would announce, coming soon, gone with the wind. East of Santa and Friendly, there were riots in the spring of 1969. Nelson Johnson stood on tables at Dudley High, daring students to talk about curriculum and dress codes. National Guardsmen shot the locks off the doors of A&T dorms. The FBI took down the number for the House of Wausia bookstore and sent telegrams to military intel about the thrifty curb market. In 1971, Clockwork Orange, and the courts slammed down the accelerator on the deliberate speed of integration. I remember a Jackson 5 poster, and girls who couldn't stop touching my hair, saying my name like a song. The same parents who saw Godfather and Last Tango sent me to a new school for quieter kids. Daylight savings extended to save energy, and the bus lurched, the bus lurched to school and from school in darkness. My brother built a diorama of the burning of Atlanta. One year, Santa's arm got stuck in salute, apology, mechanic fatigue. Soon after, the classics never returned. There was no intermission. 
the Klan drove to Morningside homes. Luke Skywalker confronted his father, and we all went spinning like stricken TIE fighters into the vacuum of space. Now, that poem made a reference to Morningside Homes, which was another big event in Greensboro in my childhood. Um, the, there was, for those of you around in 1979, or may or may not remember, um, Klan shooting. There was a march that some people held, and it was Communist Workers' Party, and they were they um, declared a death to the Klan march, and then the Klan met them there, and five people were killed. Um, and this has become a pivotal event in the history of Greensboro. Later, Greensboro formed something called a Truth and Reconciliation Committee to resolve or reconcile as best they could what had happened that day. Um, it's about 500 pages long, and it is really fascinating and also just very tragic when you see what, what happened. Um, so that was one of the things I spent a lot of time looking at um, while I was writing these poems. And I'm going to read two from the sequence that's about that event. Am I okay on time? Okay. Revenants 1. 88 seconds. You can play the video on YouTube. You can count the shots. You can read the police radio transcript. You can wait for the eye of Sandy Smith peeking around the corner to look at a bullet. You can turn Jim Waller's body over and offer mouth to mouth. You cannot go back to 1979. The police are still in the Biscuitville or the wrong block of Everett. Roland Wood still doesn't know why Jim Waller raised the shotgun, fear or defiance. He asks if you understand. Nelson Johnson remembers his first thought, set up. Here's the truth of reconciliation. It takes a lot of pages and you still can't know. Car windows open with hand cranks. Doctors pick birdshot out of arms. A little boy in a red beret looks at his heart in the camera. Okay, so I'm going to read one more from that sequence, and then I'll end with the poem that was the, um, that's been published in Little Patuxent Review. This one is another one about the series with the Klan. It's called A Bad Day at Morningside Homes. First, the Communist Workers' Party burned the flag in China Grove, the old flag of the war. Then they slurred the name of the men of the Clavern, calling them two-bit punks. So the Klan showed up at the homes, a van filled with guns and Mountain Dew, brass knuckles, and a five-foot length of chain. Virgil Griffin could have told them, you don't just insult the men without a fight. You just don't start chanting from marks and lighting up the bonnie blue and expect it all to wash away with Mary's tears. The homes were filled with colored Negro blacks wishing another neighborhood had come to mind, and yet talking to the activists thinking union thoughts. Exhilarated with the steps forward, they wished their grandmas could see. Someone chanted, Nazis, Klan, scum of the land. Someone countered, Hitler was right. Hitler was right. The FBI and the police and those who hired them thought, as long as people act civil, there will be no more war. As long as the South lays low, no trouble will rise. Peace is more important than justice. 
That's what they were thinking in their cars a few blocks away when the sound of gunfire penetrated the glass. Uh, I wrote that maybe eight years ago. And it's just, it's powerful, you know, to see how our world is right now. Okay, so the last one is called Coke Machine. Please be here. I just saw it. It's hiding like my glasses did. Coke Machine at the Civil Rights Museum, based on a true story, as they say. And a great one, if you ever go to the Civil Rights Museum. The guide points out the chain-link fence used to try to segregate the ocean. Then she turns to her favorite item. She shows us the Cavalier 102 Coke machine, able to sell from both sides, marked colored on one and white on the other. Notice the different prices, she says. White's got a cold Coke for five cents. Black's a warm one for 10. Coca-Cola denies this use, says it was handy in garages, train stations, could sell twice as much. She smiles a historian's smile, glad for the proof of the horrifying, shooing phantoms of denial and doubt firmly out of at least this Greensboro building. Thank you. As a child, uh, one of the, my favorite things to do with my mother was watch TV. And we spent a lot of time watching Star Trek The Next Generation. And uh, it just as I was listening to the poems today, it reminded me that, um, you know, we were both, my mother and I, fans of Patrick Stewart. Um, and then I realized years later, um, Patrick Stewart was the only white man that my mom was ever like, hmm... Damn fine. <laughs> uh, so it's interesting to me, um, those things we do with family, what, what we're led to. Um, and I say that all to say, um, it's my pleasure to welcome someone who has been um, like a mother to me and someone who has also been a fantastic mentor and poet. Um, she just had a brand new book come out. Um, it is my pleasure to welcome Laura Chauvin. Laura Chauvin is former editor uh, for Little Patuxent Review and editor of, two, uh, editor of two poetry anthologies. Her chapbook, Mountain, Log, Salt, and Stone, won the inaugural Harris Poetry Prize. Laura works with children as a poet in schools and was the 2015-2016 Howard County Poetry and Literary Society's writer-in-residence. The last fifth grade of Emerson Elementary is her debut novel in verse for children, and it's on sale um, on the table there. Please join me in welcoming Laura Chauvin. Hey, everybody. I'm going to add to the thanks. I um, Many years ago, when I was editor of LPR, I had an email from, it may have been Shailene, I don't remember who it was from, saying, hey, would LPR like to partner with the Pratt on a poetry contest? Maryland Poets? 
And I said, sure, let me, let me run it by the, uh, the co-publishers. And they said, sure. Um, and I don't think any of us really thought that it would still be going, that the partnership would still be going after several years. And it's just been such a rich partnership, I think, on both ends. So thank you to the Pratt for reaching out um, to Little Patexent Review and for making this this contest possible. Um, I don't know if any of you know, but the, the way that it works is LPR staff members act as the judges, but the Pratt librarians um, are, are the ones who administrate the contest and screen the poetry and, and give a, a smaller group of the poems um, to the staff at LPR to then be selected and then have some of the finalists appear in the issue. So I'm really proud of, and I'm, I'm, I know Stephen is too, of, of this partnership and, and where it's gone. And actually, little known fact, I'm going to give you all a little secret. Um, Stephen came to us through this contest. He was a finalist one year, I believe, in the second year. And um, that was this impressive young poet. And when I was ready to step down, I thought, you know, I think I have a good idea for who might make a, an excellent editor. Um, so thank you, a special thank you to the Pratt for sending Stephen to, to LPR as, um, as our current editor. He's doing a wonderful job. So um, I'm going to first read, based on what, what I've been hearing, I was going to read a poem from my children's novel, um, but I was going to read it last, and instead I'm going to read it first, because we've been talking a bit about social justice issues. Um, my book looks like this, and it is about, it's called The Last Fifth Grade of Emerson Elementary, and it is about a school in Howard County that's a struggling school, um, and to be honest, the book, it, I was proud of the book, but it wasn't working entirely until I brought in something that all of you will be familiar with um, living in this area as you do, and that was a theme of um, the, the main thrust of the story is that this is a group of fifth grade students whose school at the end of the year is going to be torn down, and they decide to stage a protest. And as you know, it's been much in the news here in Maryland. Um, this year in particular, a group of Carroll County schools were um, protesting and advocating to save their schools, and they ended up losing their case and, and being shut down at the end of the year. So I'm only going to read one poem, um, because tonight I'd like to, the, the four poems I'm going to read are all persona poems. I'm very interested in, in character and developing a character in the small space of a poem. And the poem that I'm going to read is in the voice of a boy named Edgar Lee Jones. Um, I don't know if any of you are fans of Spoon River Anthology. Where are my Spoon River people out there? Uh, my book is, has some similarities with Spoon River. It was one of my, my source materials. So Edgar Lee Jones is named after Edgar Lee Masters, the author of Spoon River Anthology, classic American verse novel. And um, Edgar Lee is the first character to speak in this book, although this is not his first poem. And he is a biracial character. And in this poem, um, it's a sonnet. Um, sonnets appear a few times in this book. Um, usually, excuse me. Usually, when a character is feeling kind of hemmed in by their peers. So this is in the voice of a fifth grader named Edgar Lee Jones, and the poem is called "Field Trip." Why did my mom sign up to chaperone? I'll have to answer questions like, "Who's she?" Your mom is white? Well, should I be a clone with her light hair and skin? Not brown like me. I'll slide down in my seat 
and read a book so kids won't stare at us the whole bus ride. I hate when they're pretending not to look. My mom is cool. Why should I have to hide? So what if I am black and also white? Who cares that I don't look just like my mom? My family is different, but we're tight. Get over it, because there's nothing wrong. If someone gets up in my face today, at least that's what I think I'm going to say. And this character especially appeals to me because my family is extremely bicultural. Um, I'm a first-generation American. My mom comes from Great Britain, and my dad is from the Bronx and Jewish. And um, so characters who are bicultural are, are interesting to me because I, I grew up that way. Um, the second poem that I'm going to read, also a sort of persona poem, is um, a poem from my daughter, who happens to be in New York at the moment, um, in a theater program. This is when she was younger. It's called Pomegranate. A crate of pomegranates in the grocery store. Box of rosy softballs. My daughter wants to buy one. She loves the novelty of fruit. Papaya, kiwi, melons, named in foreign tongues. She wants to juice the pomegranate. I place it on our kitchen counter, round and red, a rose hip that fits in her palm. The flesh is leathery, not thick, when I peel it and hand her chunks of seeds. She pulls them off the rind, fills a bowl, red juice under her nails. I mention Persephone and the seeds Hades gave her to make her stay. I tell my daughter, seeds are not just fruit. They are the seeds of the God. And she thinks I've crossed some kind of line. This is too much like sex education, like middle school health class. She wants fruit to be fruit. She wants myth without symbol. We pour seeds in the juicer. They whir and grind. I add an apple to make it sweeter and bite my tongue when Eve slinks into the kitchen asking if she can help. Um, I'm working on another children's novel right now, and I pulled out one particular poem. This one was published in, in LPR before I was editor, and um, this is a persona poem, and it's set... Um, the title takes the setting, Route 1, Delaware. So it's that like particular spot in um, along Route 1 at the beach ocean above Ocean City where you kind of go from the Ocean City hustle and bustle to this very, I don't want to say depressed, but it's, it's not, I don't know, it, it, it's just a little bit seedier um, around the Fenwick Island area. And, um, and I'm, I'm working on... Um, a scene in, in my current novel that takes place there as well. So something about that place really speaks to me. So this is in the voice of a young woman, Route 1, Delaware. The motel room was the color of putty. Vinyl walls, two double beds, coverlets worn thin, cigarette burns. A steel kitchenette, mini fridge that froze everything to slush. I wore flip-flops in the shower. The water smelled of iron the sour smell of a body when it's bleeding. I said, feel how soft it makes my hair. But he didn't like the scent on his skin, wouldn't drink the tap stuff, only bottled. We tried to boil it, but the water was stained with rust. He sulked, watched the news on cable TV while I stood in the shower and let the water run bloodless and pungent 
over my sun-hot skin. And then the very first poem that I had published when we moved to Maryland in 1999 was published by Little Patuxent Review, and I remember I was so excited. Oh my gosh, I was like, local journals publishing my work. So I just wanted to bring to show you a very old copy of LPR from back in 2008 um, when the journal was uh, two years old, just two years old. And um, I had a poem published in here, and, and I remember going to the reading, and if I, oh gosh, I want to say Joy Harjo was the interview, and, and she was at the reading, and I was just like freaking out, excited, because I love her. Um, so I'm going to read a poem, um, and it was later published in, in my chapbook. It's called The Listening of Plants. On the buffet, where she kept her celadon dishes, mother placed a vase of pussy willows, hurried out of their branches. The buds were cat toes walking up a mottled branch, miniature koalas hanging on their eucalyptus in a scattered line. I snapped one off the twig and rolled the bud on the flats of my thumb and finger, its smoky gray coat, how I imagined koala fur might feel. I rubbed the willow bud along the bone of my jaw, wanting to know how a plant can wear animal skin. It was too small, like touching nothing. I splayed my hand along its curves, felt the hairs rise in the divot of my palm. I would have needed a sweater of willow to be satisfied. Instead, I slipped it into my ear. How did I know a pussy willow was the right shape for the foyer of my ear, long hall leading to the eardrum and the bones behind? The bud rested there, and I listened, wanting to hear what it had to say, which was quiet, which was the muted listening of plants. When I asked mother to extract a pussy willow from my ear, I couldn't explain its presence, how I listened and heard its secret. Thank you. Our next reader is the winner of the Enoch Pratt Free Poetry Contest, Sandra Rose Malay. I had the great pleasure of um, being the judge for the Enoch Pratt Poetry Contest, and I was so um, enamored with this poem called Charlotte Darling that came across my desk as I was moving through the poems. I once had a teacher um, tell us um, or ask us, when you're writing a poem about someone's, um, a, a historical person, what does the poem give you that you can't get from reading the biography? Um, and this poem was one that did that in its mystery, in its humor, in its exactness with language. And I'm so glad that you get to be a part of listening to not only that poem, but other poems from this fantastic poet. Sandra has had poems in Dryad, Beltway Poetry Court, Quarterly, Full Moon on K Street, poems about Washington, D.C., and D.C. Perspectives. Her first book of poems, Disappearing Act, was published in 2015 by Dryad Press. She co-edited A Wild Perfection, The Selected Letters of James Wright with Anne Wright, 
and they are currently working on a book about write and translation, Where the Treasure Lies. She also published Solitary Apprenticeship, James Wright and German Poetry. She teaches composition and research at Montgomery College in Tacoma Park, Maryland. Please welcome Sandra Rose Malay. <laughs> Thank you so much, Stephen. What a wonderful introduction. I've never been called fantastic or anything like that. Thank you. I've also never won a contest before, so this was quite a surprise when Shailene called me. Um, I think I'm going to save Charlotte Darling for the last poem, so then you can't leave. You have to, <laughs> you'll have to wait to hear that. You'll have to listen to a couple of mine first. I have one book of poetry, Disappearing Act, and it was decades in the making. Um, can you hear me okay? It, you can't tell from back here. Um, let's see. One of my favorite poems in here, the book is divided into three sections. It took That was the hardest part. I had been writing poems for a long time. And so when uh, Meryl Leffler of Dryad Press finally said, Sandra, yeah, let's do your book, I thought, how do you arrange all of this? So that was the hardest part. And actually, Charlotte Darling was supposed to be in the book, but it got pulled out at the last minute, and I'm kind of glad it did, or it wouldn't have been eligible for the contest. So that's when I said, when I saw this contest, I said, let me... Uh, Charlotte didn't get in the book. Let me send her up and see what happens here. And I thank Baltimore and all of you, too. I do believe in saying thank you also. I decided to put the book in three parts. And the first part is Strange Familiars. And it's about a lot of characters and sketches of people, like someone else was saying just now, who followed me around, I feel, for much of my life. And the second part is Familiar Strangers. And that was sort of more personal friends and family. And then the last part is Departures, uh, which, where I put everything I didn't know how to put anywhere else. <laughs> but on a, on a more serious note, I also dedicated the book to my niece who died at 19. Um, it was kind of another kind of departure. My favorite, one of my favorite poems in here it was the last thing I wrote. It was a little, it's a little epigraph. I, was, I went down to see the Wyeth exhibit at the gallery down in D.C., and I'm not a Baltimore person. I'm a D.C. person, but I love Baltimore and my grandfather actually grew up here. And um, so I have been in Baltimore over, over the years from time to time, and I love it. Every time I come, just now we went around the corner and had some friends had uh, dinner at O'Shea's. What a great place. This is such a community-oriented uh, city. I love it. But this little poem, I saw that famous uh, Andrew Wyeth painting, you know, Wind from the Sea, with the, the curtain kind of lifting, and it just blew me away. So I started writing the poem while I was in the exhibit, and I put it as kind of an epigraph in the front of the book. It's called Wind from the Sea, after Andrew Wyeth. Slight breeze lifting above the windowsill, wings barely visible. This blue door matters. It all matters. An open window, momentary answer, this empty room, this slight breeze lifting. And I just wanted to open with that nice quiet note. And then I'm going to read, I think, I always read this King Tut poem, but I think I'm going to start with a poem in the voice of Moses. So it's a dramatic, dramatic monologue. And I heard that, I never knew this, Moses stuttered. He was a stutterer. And that struck me for some reason, so I just started writing this poem. And it took 
a couple of years to get it to look like this, or to sound like this, I guess. Stone promise. Too late this labor comes. I am old. Can walk no more through Cades and Farron with a bony camel and a crooked rod. I am lost. Six thousand trail behind. Point fingers mock my stuttering tongue. O shepherd of the midbar, lead me on to the tent of final meeting. Exodus without end. I am no nomad. Mad with manna. I lack strength to go on and send my soul before me to ask God if my work is done. When you see him face to face, bring back word of an oasis. I thirst. My doubt grows wide as the desert. I am a middleman who kept my part at this last turn, no marker for my bones. I'll pick it up a little now. <laughs> um, with everything going on in Cleveland, as we speak, I guess, um, I thought I'd uh, write about uh, Lincoln when he was running for a Senate seat. And I heard in a biography that Lincoln loved to look at the sky, and there was this uh, meteor going by back in 1858 called Donati's Comet. And he's, he sat out on the porch to watch it, and I just thought, what a great idea. So I just thought how that might have been for him. A Recollection of Donati's Comet, September 14, 1858. He sat on the porch of Union House in Jonesboro, Illinois, that warm night, fragments of whittling at his feet, the last cricket chirping his loneliness. Abraham Lincoln was running for a Senate seat, held his notes in his lap that night before his third debate with Douglas. He wanted to see the comet, a scimitar slicing through heaven, its luminous tail trailing and bright. Millennia would pass before this sword would cross the evening sky again. And this I'm going to read. It's about a person, and it, this reminds me that I should do this. It's called Stardust Man. I read this obituary about this fellow, and I was fascinated by his life. Stardust Man is dead and gone somewhere, ashes to ashes, dust to stardust. Jeffrey Burbage, 84, peeled back the layers of the universe and saw more beauty out there than anyone had dared. A pioneer, he aimed a radio dish from Kitt Peak into a clear Arizona sky, traced gargantuan galaxies hung like lace at the edge where blue quasars burn and blink with the light of a trillion suns. Born near Stratford-on-Avon, he sailed his stellar craft against the tide. Bard of the skies, he laughed at the Big Bang. It didn't happen. Galaxy begets galaxy. All light, fantastic. Our future stars, our future selves, curled and embryonic, sucking at a silent thumb. Every grain in us was once inside a star, the same star. You and I are brothers. I just thought that was fantastic. And a scientist believes that. And I'm going to read this one that is one of my favorites, I think. It's about James Wright. As you heard Stephen say, I've done a lot of work on the poet James Wright who died it's got to be 30 years ago now, and he's not as remembered as he used to be, but he was a great in his day, and he actually uh, influenced a lot, of, uh, a lot of poets. 
back in the 70s and 80s, you couldn't go to a poetry reading without hearing someone read a James Wright poem, especially after he died. So I'm going to read this one. I think I have time. To a Defeated Savior for James Wright. And I'll just say that this was written as I was riding back home from a Martin's Ferry uh, festival they had every year for James Wright in April. That was his hometown. And uh, everything that, it was one of those magical moments as I drove back, everything felt like a poem. So I just sort of jotted things down as I was riding home. And of course, worked on it for a long time, but this is the way it is now. To a defeated savior for James Wright. One, the house on Union Street where he was born no longer stands. Disappeared between Pearl and Zane highways. So I pay my respects to an abandoned house nearby before leaving town. I rolled down Seabright's Lane toward Hanover Street in the silent blue music of the lives he saved. Three women sit at a bus stop like shopping bags, and an old man some factory belched up after 30 years in hellfire spits back through a gap in his teeth. Down Short Street, a fan of spray lifts off the hood of a souped-up Chevy. I don't belong here. Two, on the way home back through Lover, PA, and the open throat of Allegheny Mountain, the turnpike unwinds like a fraying ribbon. The spring hills hold a hundred shades of green, and when I round a curve, six white horses bloom on a hillside, still as marble markers. For some reason I look back, and Martin's Ferry disappears with the sun over Sidling Hill, and you are gone, gone over my shoulder forever. Three. And at my back, in the rearview mirror, a monstrous truck bears down, its fierce face glaring. Trust Jesus, someone sprayed on the bridge in the blood of a broken deer. You were right. We can all go straight to hell in Ohio or wherever we are. <laughs> Excuse me. Four. The journey back is long. I lull into the incandescent blue of early sleep. Sudden beads of light slip past like the first flashes of a dream. The deep black bowl of the valley fills with small gems, one by one. And two glowing coals burn like sanctuary lamps on the back of a Buick up ahead. I am not alone, sweet Jesus of graffiti. I fall into your fluorescent arms. Five. Suspended on the long white line between your poem and mine, I am going home. It glimmers in the distance like a jewel I could hold in my hand from here. I think that I'll read one more for that I wrote for Lucille Clifton, who had some association with Baltimore. This is one of the first poems I ever wrote, and it was based on a poem of hers from her first book called Good Times. And... Uh, I was just taken by her. I heard her read and just loved her energy, and she was, she was a beautiful person. Still, for Lucille Clifton. It was fine when the huckster man came round, hollering fresh fruit. We'd run out the back door, let it slam on Mom's words, and run up to the back of the old pickup truck, peep over the side at the red strawberries, brimming out of baskets, and think how good they taste over cake. So now maybe it's time to read Charlotte, which I am so glad you chose this. And I saw the poster out in the window for the first time today. It's gorgeous. 
So thank the library and the fellow you said who actually put that together, the designer. What was his name? Jack Young. Jack Young. I, I, I wrote this poem because I just heard this History Detectives. One morning I just clicked on the TV and here was this History Detectives show. And I was fascinated. They were talking about this woman who used to draw cartoon figures and they were trying to find out what these uh, cells were, these, uh, I guess, big... Uh, celluloid, they were trying to find out who the person was who did it and what the story was behind that, and I was fascinated. And I loved her name, Charlotte Darling. So I listened to this and sort of made some of this up, and much of it's true. And at the end I'll say, I said this when I read it in April up here, the HUAC that I mentioned at the end is the House Un-American Activities Committee that she was called in front of back in, I think, 1953. So here's Charlotte. She gets the last word tonight. And so does Buddy, who's actually the character who's in the center of that phrase, uh, and she did that drawing. Charlotte Darling was an ink and paint girl in L.A., worked with a quill, tracing cartoon lines onto cells for less than three bucks a day, bit her lower lip at the start of every frame, 5,000 cells to go, maybe 10. Ah, men. She'd crack a joke about the guy she was seeing, adjust her gooseneck lamp, put her head down, and draw. At Warner Brothers, she inked Buddy, a Looney Tune who took on Mickey Mouse. Buddy's run was short, but Charlotte's pen got Buddy out on his first date with Cookie in 1933. She worked for Disney, too, and Hanna-Barbera, a sharp dresser, her hat dipped to one side. She was the first to sign up for the Cartoonist Guild, went red for a time, collected pennies for the cause. Years later, she was called before the HUAC. I only wanted more money for us gals. All those frames. She named four names. Thank you. Thank you. I feel so blessed to be a part of this reading with you all, to be in this wonderful room with the stars above us. You know, th these could be stars that Neruda was looking at. Um, uh, may we all be so lucky. Um, I just want to say thank you again to the Enoch Pratt Free Library, to all of the staff that helped us to administer the, the contest, to our wonderful finalists, um, to everyone at LPR who helped to put the journal together. And I would just leave you with this and say that I hope that poetry continues to be a good home for you where you can say thank you, thank you, thank you forever. Have a good evening.